Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Today, we're going to be talking about making the DM's job easy and Pathfinder taking on Dungeons and Dragons. Ooh. With me today at the Roundtable are Joe Lestowski. Howdy. Topher Koan. Hey, guys. And Brendan Mansell. Hi, everybody. All right, guys. So, Brendan, you're uh, new to the roundtable here. And when we have somebody new, we like to run down and let people know sort of how long we've been playing the game and uh, and what our various credentials are. Uh, so, I'm James Intracasso. I've been playing uh, role-playing games since I was 10. I started with second edition, and I've played all various editions of D&D and many other tabletop products. Uh, and I started this podcast. Uh, and, Joe, what are your credentials? Uh, I've been playing since right between first and second edition D and D, which was high school for me, um, and I uh, currently contribute a lot to uh, DungeonsMaster.com, uh, where we just actually completed a whole month of alphabet-related adventure hooks, totally worth checking out. And I also run the D and D Encounters program at my local gaming store in Western Massachusetts. Excellent. Topher, what are your credentials? Uh, I've been playing D&D since the Red Box. Took a little break during the 3-3-5 era. Actually, uh, um, I took a break longer than that. Then came back forth because of the Encounters program. Um, I used to write for CNN.com, and now I you know, freelance right here and there. I also run my Encounters program at my local friendly gaming store in Smyrna, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. And uh, Brendan, what are your credentials? Um, I started playing right after 3.5 came out, but I've since gone back and played earlier ones and I've gone on to do other, like a lot of play by post because of my location basically. Um, and yeah, I played, um, uh, what have I played? Star Wars, I've played, um, uh, Mutants and Masterminds, yeah, all, all sorts of various things. So, um, I've DM'd for a long time. I've DM'd for probably close to 15 years, maybe. So, yeah. Well, and that's how you and I met. You were uh, DMing a play-by-post uh, Mutants and Masterminds game, and that's how we met. All right, so moving on, we've got a get-to-know-you question for our panel. It's a panel of all DMs, which is very exciting for me. Uh, we get to talk a little shop today. So, DMs, what I want to know from you guys is, what is the best encounter you think you've ever designed? Joe, we'll start with you. Back right after the D&D movie came out, uh, <laughs> we all went opening night. We were there early, like, you know, camping out because we thought there'd be crazy crowds and stuff. And uh, my whole gaming group and I, uh, and afterwards we were so upset that they had turned dragons into fighter planes and that they had just fallen short of the mark that we were like, you know what? Screw it. We can go home and do it better. Uh, and so we went home and we did, and I had to come up with a, a dungeon that they could go into very quickly. So we came up with the old dwarven city of Helmsgard, uh, which uh, had been abandoned for some reason or other. Uh, and they had to get in, but the doors were locked. And the doors were a giant wall with uh, carvings of various famed dwarven battles on them. And each of the monsters and each of the dwarven heroes had little, like, slit marks across where their necks were where you could push in like an axe or a sword or something and you had to in order to get access to the city had to know enough dwarven history to kill things in the order that they died 
in you know historical uh, context. And if you didn't, then um, a stone version of whatever that hero or monster was would animate and attack you. That's pretty cool. I like that a lot. <laughs> uh, Topher, how about you? What's your favorite encounter you've ever designed? So in my home campaign, it was a three-session arc that took this to happen, but I had them um, be chased into a into a mausoleum kind of crypt, and they encountered a beholder that had the door closed and the room filled with water. Huh. My players were not really happy with me after this one. <laughs> there was a little bit of cursing at me. Like, I had a player literally stand outside the door and say, unless you give me a reason to go in that room, I'm not going in that room. <laughs> because my guy can look and see a beholder standing there. I'm not going to walk into the room. <laughs> So I had whatever was chasing them. I forget it was like orcs or trolls or goblins or something, whatever was chasing them, show up at the other end of the hallway and be severely outnumbered and go into the room. But yeah, it was three sessions. I used a, um, Mike Shea on, on Sly Furish had these really great kind of alternate stats for a Beholder in 4E to kind of make the stalks do something kind of really different and cool. And Ooh, yes. So I used those and uh, it kind of really rocked. I think at the end, they really liked it. Yeah, you because know, because it wasn't just the beholder; it was the room was also filling with water. I nice. bet they remember it. I bet they so, remember it. <laughs> yeah, they remember. Look, so the the water was there for one purpose was to make sure that the time it like okay, you guys have a finite amount of time to either kill the beholder or find a way out. Yes, and go. And was <laughs> was was the real solution for them to put chlorine in the water so the beholder's eyes would get all irritated and then <laughs> so, believe it or not, somebody came up with salt. Wow! <laughs> somebody said, "If I find enough salt, can I put it in the water?" And I said, "Yes." But this is how much salt. I came up with some exorbitant number, and they were like, oh. <laughs> the real solution was all they had to do was swim to the back corner, which would have you know, moved to the back corner, which would have taken them half a session. <laughs> and, you know, survive not dying by the beholder. And then there was, there was a way out. Ah. But at the time, the party's whole purpose was it's alive in front of us. We must kill it. Ah, I see. I see. Uh, well, that was a good way to teach them a lesson, too. It, it was, like. right? It was. <laughs> Brendan, what is your favorite encounter you've designed? Um, I've actually kind of got two. It's hard to pick between them. One of them was um, fairly early game um, where I had uh, the party climbing a mountain via very narrow uh, like a path. Basically, it's basically a ledge that just went up the side of this mountain. And um, I had – it was a, a group of uh, red dragon wormlings Ooh. and um, they were doing – gradual flybys and um, attacking and you'd have one land in front of the party and one behind as well and the party was actually tied together by rope so they had to <laughs> um, they had to time when they needed to you know um, attack a dragon when they had a couple of seconds to wait because they were doing you know turning around and coming back and when they could spend a second and you know pull up the guy who just fell who's between <laughs> two of them that kind of thing so yeah, that that was kind of cool. Um, it was it was really um, time sensitive. It was one of those time sensitive sort of ones. <laughs> and the other one um, was uh, in a in a sort of open area underground where there was like a like a lost. I don't know. It might have been like a town or something. I don't think they actually worked out what it was, but it was like a um, like a built-in area that was abandoned, and um, they were traveling across some um, uh, bridges made of glass. <laughs> and the creatures coming in from the other side, trying to def you know defend against them invading, basically, um, 
were picking and choosing where to break the glass oh. and depending on how smashed up a piece of the bridge is made it harder for them to move across it like <laughs> they, they they had to they, they had to basically split their weight mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff so it was um yeah that was interesting too <laughs> and they basically let them do the same thing like they they could actually attack pieces of the bridge to make it harder for the defenders that kind of thing yes Wow. Mm. All right, guys. Well, these are all cool encounters. I'm definitely stealing all of these ideas. Let's move on to our first topic of the day, which is we're going to talk about a Legends and Lore article by Mike Merles that came out on the 21st of April uh, called Making the DM's Job Easy. And then later on that week, the D&D Next Q&A on the 25th of April sort of followed up uh, as it typically does with questions and answers about things Mike had written about in the Legends and Lore article. Essentially, he writes this post about how they're going to make the DM's job easy. It's going to be very easy, it sounds like, uh, to create your own monsters and creatures and NPCs on the fly, uh, which is something I'm pretty excited about. It sounds like they're taking a lot of cues from 4th edition. As far as that goes, which is pretty cool. They talk about how when you design something, you know, you're going to be using an XP budget that you're going to have challenge rating instead of levels. Um, So there are some third edition elements as well linked in there. Overall, I thought it was a pretty great article. Uh, It very much excited me as a DM to, to see this. But let's hear what you guys think. What did you love about the article? What didn't you like about the article? What more did you want to see? And uh, why don't we start with Topher? So, I mean, I think it's great that they're trying to put the power in the DM's hand. I think it's something to get lost in the shuffle of fourth edition, mm-hmm. that it was that you could create your own monsters and create your own NPCs and stuff in fourth edition. I think that somehow got lost on DMs, and I'm not sure how it did. Mm-hmm. But I think it's great that they're coming out right up front and saying, hey, we're going to give you a tool set, quote-unquote, to allow you to do this. I find it interesting that they talk about DRs and stuff and don't reference third edition at all in the Q&A. You know, I find that a little, a little odd, but I think that the information they're giving us is really good. The challenge rating stuff makes sense. You know, I think that the I thought I think that in fourth edition the monster level compared to a uh, player level is a little flawed. So I think this is the kind of way to fix it. I'm excited about it. I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, I don't know if this makes the job easier for us. I just think it gives us the tools to do it. I think I'd love to see a number that says what percentage of DMs just pull monsters straight out of a book or encounters or whatever right out of a book and what percentage actually go throughs and crafts them. I bet you it's a really small percentage. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I do think it's one of those things that every DM wants to do at some point, you know? I'm sure there are some people who do it all the time, but I think a majority aren't doing it all the time. But I wonder if there's people like me who every now and then I'm like, ah, I just wish I could. Ah, I really want to be able to, you know? Um, for the most part, I'm sticking to your classic gnolls and bugbears and the holders and things like that. But there are times where I'm like, oh, if I could just, you know, make that sort of weird hybrid creature or whatever it is I want to make. I mean, and the article talks a lot about, it sounds like what they're saying is you're going to be basically reskinning, which is what we do in fourth. Right. But you have the ability with this quote unquote tool set to plug and play some other stuff into it. So if that's cool, if that's, if that's what they're going for, then that's great. Cause right now I'm sure we all do it. When if you're running a four E game, you find a monster that's close, 
and, and call it something else. Yes, have done that all the time. So, <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Uh, well, my favorite part of the article was the little paragraph right above the um, uh, kobold imagining what he's going to cast his wish on there picture. Um, it talks about the creative elements and how they're going to have a bunch of uh, quick tables where if you need to roll up a unique dungeon that has some flavor, they're going to have a bunch of different tables that will uh, give you things that you can throw in to make it unique uh, without having to you know, design... 500 unique dungeons for your party to go through throughout their gaming career. Uh, I like that. I like the ability to sort of run on the fly as you're creating the dungeon, be like, this room has, and then you roll on the table, and oh, this is the harem room, or this is the, you know, whatever. Like, just find, I, I like I like that, that randomness, but in a way that is helpful to, to the DM. I mean, there's certain random things like some of the old ways they used to handle wild magic were really annoying to a DM because crazy things could happen that you'd then have to account for. But if it's randomness in, in a way that the DM can use to make it more fun for the players, uh, I am a big fan of that. Um, and as far as the monster creation goes, I, I, like, I like the direction they're going. Uh, I like that they are sticking to some of the 4e uh, mentality because when I when I DM'd 3rd edition and 3.5 I could spend an evening uh preparing and by the time I was done I would have a monster created you know I would I would because I would give him two levels of fighter and three levels of wizard and these spells and these that uh with 4th edition I could spend an evening preparing and I'll have an encounter created mm-hmm. uh and I I feel like they they're they're honing that ability to uh just be more efficient in your in your DM prep work, and I like that. Yeah, because it is it is true. It seems like for every hour of game that I prep, I I spend you know two to three hours prepping, uh, which can be a lot. Brendan, what did you think about this article? Yeah, I, I liked it because well, a few reasons. Um, the the that fast dungeon creation that um, I think Joe mentioned before that's just awesome because I'm I'm one of those compulsive like preparation people where I've got to have like everything, <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure, you know, several of those people. <laughs> um, yeah. So when, when I have to improv something, it's, you know, difficult because I don't tend to do that all the time. Um, so when, I, when there's something that can just make me up something to start with and I can like extrapolate from that, that's just, you know, that's awesome. Um, the other thing I liked is the, um, they're trying to get the um, high level casters to be a bit easier to handle. And that's really good too, because sometimes they're a bit of a pain. Um, oh yeah, a lot of a lot of the other stuff. It seemed to me like they've just recognizing that people do things differently, and they're just allowing more options for how you do things. And um, I think that's good, really, because it, it means you're going to get more people DMing for yeah. a start, which is always that's always been a thing. Like you know, there's never enough DMs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, just being able to. Um, and, oh, and a lot of the stuff, that drawing on 3E stuff, um, like the um, what was it? The, the monster creation, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people um, sort of didn't like the the 4E, you know, lack of being able to do, like you were saying before, um, you know, just naming another creature, this right. thing, just because we haven't got one like that. Um, being able to actually make a monster from scratch like you could with the 3E rules, um, I thought that was yeah. really good. So, um, yeah, but yeah, basically just the, the added ways of doing things. I think that's, that's probably the best all round thing. Just being able to, um, allow people to do it how they want. Yeah, it's true. I also would love to see at some point, not necessarily at launch, 
they included a you remember the monster builder that came out for 4e that sort of piece oh yeah of, yeah um software that that you could download or or i guess yeah. later on it was available online and you could adjust things i would love to see some version of that uh that's a little more sophisticated you know that like allows you to apply templates to creatures and and things like that i think would be pretty oh cool. yeah yeah, that'd yeah be good. definitely i think at some point i'd love to see just in general what they're going to do with for dms for the online stuff i mean whether it's having all the books available to us or all the information or mm-hmm. you know i mean i have players ask all the time are they going to have a character builder and as a dm i'm i really want that kind of information Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's funny, Mike Merles recently said on a PAX East panel, when he was a kid, D&D was played and prepared for differently, because there wasn't as, you didn't have as many options. There wasn't, you know, streaming Netflix, and you didn't have a ton of games on your phone, and you didn't have entertainment systems like you do today, and so you spent a lot of time with your nose in the book reading, and it didn't matter that it took hours for prep, because... That's what you were doing. And then, you know, more and more adults grew up with the game, began to play. They had all of the normal pressures that come with a job and having a family and things like that that make prep hard. And then now in the modern world, a lot of people are like, well, why would I do this when I could, you know, hit up World of Warcraft and the whole world is right there for me and ready to go? Um, You know, they have a, a hard time competing with that stuff. So I think one of the reasons they're trying to make everything streamlined and a little bit easier is so that it's easier to play. It's easier to jump in. It's easier to play an adventure in two hours, you know, and, and those random tables make improv a lot easier, which I'm pretty excited about too. You know, I'm not improv is not my favorite. I'm a little uncomfortable in that area, but when I have no, I have crutches and tables and things to lean on. I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do this. You want to go off the rails? Let's go off the rails, you know? Like somebody else, I forget who said it now, that the idea of making the high-level casters easy to deal with. I mean, oh, yeah. As, as somebody who has their fourth edition player just entering Paragon, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when my casters want to do something, it's I might as well go get lunch. <laughs> while they while they look at all of their options available to them and everything they can do, and I I understand it that you know di- you know you know diversity is a spice of life, and I want them to have as many choices. But I like the the idea they're going here. I think this is going to make the game run more smoothly and and, and feel better, at least in my mind. Yeah, yeah, it's bad enough just designing the high level castle, like trying to pick what spells are going to be ready and what have you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 like building your own player character, um, mm. as if you were going to be playing it. Well, I feel like that anyway. So I'm there going, you know, trying to make a character that I would want to play almost. <laughs> and by the end of it, you're like, well, I'm only going to be using this thing for you know five minutes. <laughs> Is it going to be worth? <laughs> well, I just I had something I wanted to say because it was a lot about challenge ratings versus level. And while I appreciate that they're trying to look at the challenge that a number of uh, players are going to bring to the table, I feel like with D&D Next, um, there's so much variability that that number might mean nothing. Uh, because many of, the, many of the classes that they presented to us in the early playtests and that they feel it seems like they're sticking with, obviously I haven't seen the, the current version, uh, but they had daily sort of powers, especially uh, casters like wizards and clerics. You know, they've got their their really minor uh, at will powers, but most of their spells are are this many times per day. So a challenge rating, you know, five monster for a fully rested party of level five characters 
might you know have a certain difficulty rating, whereas a challenge rating five monster, after that same party has been to been through two or three encounters and used up all their spells, is going to be a lot harder to hit. Whereas if you take one of the newer classes they've been talking about, like the Warlock, which has encounter recharging powers, they're going to have an easier time going after the final boss because every fight their powers have been recharging. And so I, I just I hope that some consideration is given to that so that these challenge ratings actually have some meaning. Well, yeah, you're right, Joe, because my, my fear is the fact that the players are going to learn, quote-unquote, that this that you know if they don't take a short rest or however long the rest to get all of their stuff back after every encounter, that they, yeah. could, they could die. So now all of a sudden you're dragging out what should have been a, a quick little romp through you know, um, the woods or the dungeon or a, 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 the entrance of a keep, you're now dragging right. it out because the player's like, well, we need to take a rest because our wizard just used two of his seven spells. Yeah, and that used yes. to be a joke you would tell about D&D was the, oh, you got to take another eight-hour rest, you know, and, and that was a joke. But if it becomes a reality, that's not so cool. Yeah. It's the, um, it's the player, basically, it becomes the player's decision. Like they, they, they have to learn um, how capable their characters can be in certain situations, I guess. And the, um, you know, challenge rating is just the DM starting that ball rolling, but on the other end, you know, the, the players have to pick it up at the other end and go, well, you know, can I, you know, take this on now? Cause I've already done this, that, and the other. And yeah, it's, it's not, you know, I, I don't think the DM can fully take responsibility for it. It's, they have to be able to think on, on the spot. So yeah, that's yeah. what I think about it anyway. Sure. And the fact that I think the fact that a short rest is an hour in D&D Next currently uh, does make for some interesting, you know, the DM can say, oh, you're taking a short rest here at the entrance of the keep where you just made a lot of noise. Well, (laughs) you know, here come the next four hobgoblin guards because they're they're looking in on you. You know, I think I think that will hopefully propel people forward in some way to uh take control of 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 their characters and and hopefully there's some sense of urgency so they're not constantly resting but you're right you do run into that um especially again with that sort of computer game mentality where you can rest after every other fight i I was going to say especially applying uh, because i do encounters looking at an organized play setting where that may be an option for some characters, but not others. And depending on what class they're playing, they may or may not have anything left after a short rest or an extended, you know, like it, it I just, I hope thought is put into that so that balance is achieved. Yeah. yeah. So at our, at, at, in, in Encounters program that we had um, a table, I thought handled it well. They had a cleric who used up all of his healing in the first encounter, keeping the party mm-hmm. alive. And so he needed that, he needed a two hour rest, an hour to get it back to bring the party back up. And then another hour to get it back again before they went on. So the first hour went along with no, you know, every fifth, every quote unquote 15 minutes, the DM rolled for random encounters. And nothing happened. But during the second hour, the party got attacked and the party made a decision to let the cleric continue to meditate and defend him. Oh, wow. For the rest of the time, because they thought it was important for him to get all of his healing back if they were going to progress on. And I thought, OK, these guys are thinking like a party and they're thinking 
forward. All right, guys, let's move on to our next topic, uh, which is about an escapist article that was published on the 25th of April. Um, And it was about Pathfinder and its plans to combat uh, combat the next edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And they talk about a few products that are going to be released. It sounds like there is going to be a super dungeon, as well as a a few other books that are going to add some classes to the game and a, a couple of books that are good for GMs, kind of. Obviously, this plan is not meant to, like, completely overtake D&D next. It's more meant to keep people interested, kind of, in Pathfinder. But a lot of people see these two as, like, they're opposing forces, they don't like each other, Pathfinder is is gonna come in and, and crush D&D next, no, D&D next is gonna crush Pathfinder... Um, so this article we're going to use sort of as as inspiration. We're going to talk about what's going on in it, and then we're also going to talk about the wider debate around this, like Pathfinder versus D&D. Is there really a true champion, or is there room for both in this crazy, diverse market that supports so many other games? Uh, and uh, why don't we start with Brendan? I thought you were making some interesting points before the podcast. I actually, I think, you know, there's definitely room to have both and even more. Like, you can't have enough competitors for this sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I wasn't surprised at the attitude that they were saying Pathfinder was taking where they were just kind of, you know, um, pinning their own success on D&D Next, like using them as a, as a, um, as a, a vehicle to get into the market. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, entirely reasonable and i think um if i was in their position i'd probably be doing the same thing like you've got you've already got yeah you've already got this huge thing that's you know plastered all over the whole industry um why would you not use that to (laughs) to get your product out there but yeah you can't you can't have enough of these um you know different systems it's um because everyone likes different things and you've got to um and competition's always good anyway so um yeah it, it Without the competition, really, the whole it, it'll all stagnate. The whole market would just stagnate with like one thing. So, yeah, that, that's my opinion, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, the diversity of the market is a good thing, and you know, I think we all love to play different games. We're not all just D and D players anymore. There's guys who play Fiasco, and there's you know guys who play Star Wars, and guys who play Pathfinder, and they all play D and D too, um, and girls yeah. as well. I will say. <laughs> Topher, what do you think about this? You know, I think that I, th- I agree. I think Pathfinder and Paizo in general is sort of to raise their hand and go, when Next comes out, they're going to get all the press. The New York Times, the, the CNNs, the Forbes of the world who covered the announcement are going to cover the launch again. Mm-hmm. And that's just how that is, right? And nothing that they're announcing, I think, makes anybody who's not already playing Pathfinder want to play Pathfinder off the gate. But what it does do, I think, is give the Pathfinder audience something to look forward to and have them go, okay, all right. So, yeah, this, this D&D Next is coming out. And that looks going to be cool. But, look, I got this mega dungeon. And I got advanced classes now. And I have this new adventure path and all that kind of stuff. So they have stuff to look forward to. I think there can't be too, too many. I think that bring on 13th Age, bring on Dungeon Crawl Classic, bring on <laughs> fill in the blank, you know, uh, Dragon Age or whatever. I think that you you pick your favorite poison and you you run with it. If I'm going to play a fan personally, if I'm going to play a fantasy role playing game, 
I'm going to play Dungeons and Dragons. I've tried a bunch of others and they've been good and bad and indifferent. I don't understand the, what I don't understand is the fight. I don't understand the, you, your game sucks and mine is better. Yeah. Yeah. That's just silly. (laughs) I mean, I I have sat in rooms with, when there's been a table of fourth edition, a table of, of Pathfinder and had the people from the Pathfinder table unprovoked turn around and say to us, Oh, you're playing D- Oh, you're playing a video game on the table. Why don't you play real um, role play and come play Pathfinder? <sighs> and then when you ask them, have you ever played fourth edition? <laughs> well, no. Okay. Then just go, then guess what? Enjoy your game. Have a lot of fun today. Hope you guys have a blast. We're going to play our game. Right. Right. Exactly. And I do think it's one of those things where, you know, until uh, somebody said this, uh, and I am repeating it, so I cannot take credit for it. Uh, a guy named Douglas Cole, uh, who's a very smart man. Until <laughs> we're at a point where these things are as big as football, you know, um, then we can debate about whose team is better. You know, when when things are that popular, but everybody, I mean, even even Wizards is not making money hand over fist on these things, you know, so I think until these industries are that huge, which may never happen, we shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves, which is kind of the point of this podcast. Exactly. It should be more about like getting more people into the industry. You know, Um, if, if you can get friends into playing RPGs at the table and then they go and play a different rule set, well, you know, still good, good on you for getting them into industry because at least they're playing and you know i'm i'm perfect for saying this actually because um just where i live in this little area here there's just no one (laughs) it's like the the community that plays tabletop games is just so small so Mm -hmm. anytime you get the industry that little bit more even if they're playing a different game it does it really it's it's a win so you know stuff stuff like that is silly when people complain you know my game's better than yours well you know it you know i'll play yours and then you come over and play mine (laughs) yeah exactly and they're all meant for fun so (laughs) that's right it's a game (laughs) uh joe what did you think about this article well i i'm approaching it i i while i haven't played much pathfinder i greatly appreciate the existence of pathfinder um if only because it's kept more miniatures coming onto the market uh after dnd sort of stopped creating new minis and some of the pathfinder minis are just amazing uh i picked up a random box the other day and the large figure that was in it was baphomet and it was straight out of the first edition uh you know fiend folio with the like all the you know could be satanist artwork and stuff like that's what they made a miniature of and it was amazing and now i have to work it into my game so just saying i appreciate that pathfinder has continued to put energy into uh miniatures for gaming that you could use in D&D or for whatever. Um, but reading the article, I think that um, it, it can only do good things. Uh, I think that most of my friends I know that play Pathfinder call it D&D when they play it. You know, it just happens to be this is the version of D&D that we're playing. And that's what that's what the open license uh, was for in third edition and 3.5 was so that other companies could take D&D and make their own version of it. That's how you got the Wheel of Time game. There was a Star Wars yeah. version of the game. There was all sorts of different, you know, using the basic 3.5 rules and building off of D&D. And I think it made our gaming world richer as a result because you had a system that everybody had some understanding of and then you could apply it to different worlds. And so I think that Pathfinder has just continued that. And I, I like that they're, that they're not going to do a like, you know, 
um, Justice League versus Avengers 3 or whatever and try to come out on the same weekend kind of thing, you know. But they're at the same time, they're, they're going to say, hey, people are going to be excited about gaming. Let's put out some more awesome gaming products. Yeah, yeah. And I'm excited about that as well. Do you think these predictions of one will will overtake the other so completely that they go out of business are are true? Or do you think that that's really not going to happen? If one of them fails, it will be for all of the other various reasons that other tabletop games fail all the time. I think I think the likelihood of one of these games over or overcoming the other uh, is about the same as the likelihood of you know the internet commenters of one of these games overcoming the internet commenters of the other. I mean, there's going to be people that will argue all the time. There will never be a clear winner uh, unless one of them stops publishing for some reason. And I, I think they're both popular enough. I mean, all the people I know that play Pathfinder, even if they're not, you know, elitist, we will never touch Wizards of the Coast products. We only do Pathfinder. Most of them will play whatever's in front of them, but they really like Pathfinder and that's why they keep playing it. So I think as long as Pathfinder keeps putting out products, they're going to keep buying them, and that will keep them in business. Uh, Wizards of the Coast, I think, um, unless Hasbro has some really drastic changes, I don't think they're going to shut off D and D. And and you know, Magic will 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 keep Wizards of the Coast alive for for decades after D and D stops being profitable, if it ever you know. So right. I I think uh, I don't think either either publisher is going to stop creating products at any point in the near future. And that would be the only thing that would signify a win would be the loss of the other one. Uh, so no, I don't think there can be a clear winner. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that the, one of the cool things about Pathfinder coming on the scene and a lot of people gravitating towards it is it makes wizards step up their game. You know, they're like, okay, all right, we see, we're seeing what people are drawn to. We're seeing what people like. We want to offer something different too, you know, and it, it makes everybody better when there's a little bit of competition, but it also makes, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. I, I agree a hundred percent is the fact that one of them is not going to go away until they, the financial situation changes for that company. I mean, you're right. Magic alone is going to keep Wizards of the Coast in in you know in in the bank for a long time and as long as hasbro and and wizards see the importance of the D ip for not even the role-playing just the, the the ip itself and everything else the novels the the comics the video games the ipad games you know so forth and so on we're still going to get a tabletop version of this game because it all has to ramp back to that i think they believe sure and, mm. and paizo you know I mean, have you seen a, a a Pathfinder player walk in with his with if they own all the books, they need a trolley, <laughs> and 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 then everything else. I mean, you t Joe, you talked about the minis. I buy a ton of their maps, their flip maps, and their map. Oh cards. yeah, those are great. Yeah, those, those are fantastic. Rock! Oh my gosh! I mean, it, almost as much as almost like every time one comes out, whether I think I need it or not, I just buy it because yeah. at some point I'm going to need it. I think. <laughs> you know, I think that. Beyond that, I think that you know the Paizo is now you know, Pathfinder is now becoming that kind of IP. They now have audiobooks. They you know they have a very well selling comic book. There's the the MMO that they you know, did the Kickstarter for. So I think that as long as both companies are still not losing money hand over fist, then I think everything's great. All right, guys, I think we're about ready to wrap this up. Joe, where can people find you? 
Um, my local gaming store's uh, website, modern-myths.com. I do a uh, gaming review thing there called What the Average Joe Thinks. And I also am a frequent poster on dungeonsmaster.com, which uh, reviews D&D encounters and also has a whole lot of other useful Dungeon Mastery kind of articles. Nice, nice. Topher, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on the Twitters at TopherATL. And also on the Google Plus um, with Topher Cohan, K-O-H-A-N. Uh, and um, this is, you guys have kind of spurred me a bit. And I think I'm going to relaunch um, one of my blogs. Once I do, I'll let you guys know. But it's time for me to start writing again. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, please let us know. We'll make sure that the internet world is aware Topher has a blog again. Um, and Brendan, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at X42, I-C-K-S-42. There you go. You guys can find him there. And if you have a question or topic you'd like to see us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug, check out my new blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Joe, Topher, and Brendan for coming on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to The Roundtable. Roundtable.